like to sit down for a moment. Thank you, band. And uh, um, uh, tonight we're going to do something very different. We're not going to have a talk. Instead, um, I'm going to interview uh, a very good and dear friend of mine. And uh, <laughs> um, Daniel, why don't you come up? I just want you to... Um, Welcome Daniel Huchteling, and uh, um, I, I've, known, I've known Daniel um, since he was 17 years old, and uh, you're, you're from Holland originally, aren't you? Yes. Say something in Dutch. Goedenavond allemaal. Which means? Good evening, everybody. Oh, there we go. I could, I could yeah. have guessed that. And uh, <laughs> I've known Daniel since he was 17 years old. And uh, you're now 34, so over half your life? Half my life. Half yeah. your life. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's, <laughs> uh, yes, yes I, I used to be an accountant, but I was never very good. And um, uh, Daniel, tell us, I, I just want really, I want Daniel to tell us a little bit of his story. And I'm going to ask him some questions. Uh, and guys, I just, I'll just say this. Some of what Daniel may say may seem a little, may be a little bit shocking. Um, so be warned, uh, but I've asked him to be, he's not going to say some of the worst things that he's seen, uh, but I've asked him to be fairly honest um, about, what, uh, about what he's seen, but I just want you to catch God's heart and what God can do uh, with, with ordinary people um, who are given over to him. Uh, and so, Daniel, first of all, just tell us a little bit about your, your growing up life and uh, uh, where were you born, and, and tell us about, about how you met Jesus. Um, I was born in Turkey. My parents were missionaries there. There was actually an American couple that were working in Turkey among the Muslims, and the husband was shot dead, and then the wife moved back to America, and then my parents were sent in to replace them to continue their work. And so they moved to Turkey when my mother was pregnant of me, and so I was born in Turkey in the Middle East, and lived there the first three years of my life until my father also died there in Turkey. And so he died in his sleep. We do not know why, what caused the death, but he died in his sleep. And then my mother and me and my sister, who was one, moved back to the Netherlands. And she got remarried one half year later and to a pastor. And then they joined YWAM, Youth of the Mission. And so from when I was six years old, I grew up on the YWAM missions base. In the Netherlands, I loved it. Um, lots of international friends growing up together with, always hearing stories of people that had gone into the nations, coming back to report of what the Lord had done. And I was always growing up with stories of things that the Lord was doing in the nations and just all their like funny cultural differences and experiences. Um, that's what I grew up with in just this world of people coming in from all over the world and being sent out to different nations. And um, so I grew up with like, uh, getting a heart for missions. And then, um, but getting into my teenage years, for different reasons, I, I was a very insecure uh, person. Um, probably didn't help that I had really big braces and glasses and red hair, and, uh, which was not cool in the Netherlands, nowhere probably. But uh, it's, uh, I was made fun of, bullied, and became this lonely, uh, socially awkward kid. And even into my 
starting my teenage years until I think I was, um, I was then when I was seven years old, I gave my life to the Lord. But when I was 14 years old, I went to a vineyard worship conference and a big, huge German man prayed for me for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I fell and, uh, and the Holy Spirit came over me and I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And from then on, I think I developed a hunger for the Lord. And um, the Lord started showing me that he loved me. And so that was the best news I could ever hear. Like this really insecure teenager not feeling cool at all, being ashamed of myself, and I found God, the most important person of the whole world, who really loves me and liked me too, and liked spending time with me. And so that drew me into his presence. And so in my teenage years, my bedroom kind of became my, like, my safe little room where I could spend time with what I kind of thought was the only person who really liked me, who actually really knew me and liked me. And um, so that kind of laid the foundations of my relationship with the Lord. Then um, I met Mike when I was 17, and then things became a lot harder. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, I met, I was joking. <laughs> Some things were harder. Yeah. Um, started dating, um, got married when I was pretty young, 20 years old. My wife was 19. Um, started Soul Survivor um, with some friends when I was 18 in the Netherlands. Um, doing Soul Survivor, loved it. That for I think seven years, um, saw the Lord move among young people, loved it. And then towards the end of those seven years, God started strongly stirring my heart for Africa and the poor and orphans and widows. And then moved to Kenya where I lived for eight years, did all kinds of stuff. And then one year ago, moved to Kansas City. So. Hold on, so when did you move to Kenya? Um, I was 25, and Marlise was 24. So you and your wife, you, you left Holland, and where in Kenya did you go? Uh, Kitali, which is western Kenya, yeah. close to the border with Uganda. And did you have lots of contacts there? No, no contacts, just my wife so and I went. So you, you just went. And uh, tell us a little bit about how God spoke to you to go and what your vision was when to go to Kitali. Yeah, um... I mean, even from a younger age, I always had this interest in Africa. And when I would meet people from Africa, I was so excited. And I would ask them, like, what is it like there? And then when I was, I think, 17, I had this experience with the Lord where I was at a conference. And um, there were a bunch of people from Africa there. And they were talking about giving a presentation about their continent and what the Lord was doing. And it was in that meeting that I felt the Lord speaking to me that he would use me in Africa. And so um, my wife had a, had a similar experience some years earlier. And so when we met, uh, she actually told me at the very early stages of our relationship, if you don't love Africa and are not willing to move there, then our relationship won't go anywhere. And so even if I wouldn't have had a heart for Africa, I'm sure I would have gotten it at that moment. But I told her, I love Africa. I'd be happy to go there. And uh, so we always knew probably, uh, you know, one of these days we'll probably live in Africa. And it was only after working with Soulsfire for a number of years that somebody invited me to come with them on a trip to Kenya that I was there and um, that the Lord spoke to us. And we felt the Lord telling us to move to Kitali to start a mission space there. And um, uh, that was surprised us because it was like a summer missions trip for us. And we loved working with Soulsfire. 
And, um, but anyways, the, we felt the Lord spoke to us. So we went back to the Netherlands, told the team and our friends and family, and they were all like, yeah, I think that's the Lord. And um, so that kind of led in our transition to move to Kenya. So you, you packed up your stuff, you moved to Kitali. What to do? And how did it start? Um, well, we started with nothing. We each had one suitcase, started with nothing. So we went there, asked the Lord to lead us. And Kitali, that place where we, we went to, we moved to, we, there were a couple of things that we were passionate about and that we wanted to give ourselves to. And one was prayer. So that's what we started with, just gathering a few guys that we met and just praying together. Then um, the other thing was we wanted to minister to the poor and to, to widows. And so we started um, caring for widows and orphans. Um, the other thing was young people. So we started just training some young leaders and going into schools, ministering to youth there because all the young people, all teenagers are in boarding schools in Kenya. And um, so we started several children's homes. We, uh, Marlise, my wife, she started a rescue home for single teenage girls who've been raped um, and gotten pregnant, so single teenage mothers, and they're young, 12, 13, the oldest was 15. Hold on, you said that very quickly. You need to slow down for a moment yeah. because that was a lot of things. So you were 25 and 24, you moved to Kitali with two suitcases, and you started some children's homes. Marlise uh, started a rescue thing for single mums who were 12, 13, 14, yeah. and uh, training for young leaders. Um, how exactly did that happen? You know, did you just say, oh, we're going to do that, and you did it? Where did the money come from? How did, how did that happen? Yeah. Was there opposition? Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I, it was just through meeting people. Um, God would put stuff on our hearts, and we just kind of tried just to set the first step, and then things would come and fall into place. So we never, we probably never started anything having all the money up front. We just, a lot of it just was like a step in faith, like, for example, like our prayer, we started a little prayer meeting. So then we wanted to build a prayer room. Then we got an email from a guy in the Netherlands who was studying engineering and construction. And he's like, hey, I need to, for my school to finish, I need to go and work somewhere and do a project. So we're like, that's great. You can come and build a prayer room for us. And he agreed, and it's officially part of his education. So he came and um, he made all the plans. But like literally the day that he landed in Kenya, we had like zero dollars to even build this thing. And, uh, but he came with the little money that his church had given him. And so we're like, great, we'll just start with that. And then as that ran out, some other money would come in. And so it came from people that supported us or from churches or ministries. Um, that's how we just kind of started with everything or finding the right people who could do it. So for example, there was an unreached people group north of us in northeastern, well, northwestern Kenya. And um, so we wanted to reach them, and so that there was a Kenyan guy that our hearts connected with, and he became a friend of us. He, um, his passion was to plant churches among these people, and so he became part so of our team. when you say, just for those that don't understand, unreached people group, this was a tribe or a group yeah. of tribes where no one was a Christian. They'd never heard the gospel. Yeah, there was a, yeah, a people group with their own culture, their own language, and no access to the gospel, like no church, no churches. And um, so he wanted to go and reach them, bring the gospel and plant churches um, to make Jesus known. And so we did that. So in the eight years that we were there, we planted nine churches among them. And um, they became what we call a reached people group. They have access to the gospel. There's an active church in the region. 
Um, and so the people have a chance to hear the gospel and make a decision. So you, you started some children's homes for orphans. You helped some widows. You, you started a, a rescue center for women who'd been raped and were having children as young as 12. And you planted nine churches in this unreached people group. Um, what did you do in your spare time? <laughs> and we did more than that. <laughs> spare, uh, my spare time. We, oh, that's a joke. But while you were doing that, did you encounter opposition? Was that was it dangerous at times? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Kenya is relatively stable, so it's most of the danger we encountered traveling in Eastern Africa. But yeah, I mean, we were shot at in Kenya, uh, robbed, beaten up. I mean, we had stuff happening. Um, also, just spiritually, the warfare. Just times, like one time we organized like a day of prayer. And I mean, it was a great day. But afterwards, like this heaviness came on me and I was depressed for three months. Um, so there's stuff like that as well. Or like times when we'd have really bad dreams or there was like health issues with our kids. Like our daughter once nearly died. Um, and, and lots of people gathered and prayed and then... In one day, we got breakthrough, and she got healed. Um, so, yeah, a bunch of that stuff, too. Okay. And, uh, and then you, you ended up traveling a little bit from Kitali to other places in Africa where there was real trouble. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us the background. Tell us the story. Because you went to the Congo uh, amongst other places. Tell us about that. Yeah. And living, living in East Africa, of course, we would hear stories about other countries surrounding us that were in need. Um, one of them would be Somalia, but another one was the Congo. And I would hear the stories of what was happening in that nation, and it would move me. And we'd pray for that country and ask the Lord if he would use us somehow. Not that we had much to give or resources, but we'd ask the Lord if he could use us to somehow make a change in that nation. And so we'd been praying for the Congo for a while. And then um, through Open Doors, who are doing the prayer meeting tonight, we got some contact with a pastor in the Congo, in an area in East Congo where there's a rebel war going on. And so it's in the jungles, little villages, and there's about eight or nine rebel groups that move around and have for years and that are fighting, taking villages, and a lot of the conflict is fueled by the minerals in the ground. So there's a lot of diamonds in the ground and other minerals. And so they fight to get greater territory and to get income from these different mines and minerals. And even just to tax the people and plunder villages. And so we heard about the suffering that these people were under and prayed for an open door and then got in touch with a pastor of that region. And he lived in a city called Goma, which is like the capital of that province where that war is going on. And so we decided we're going to go and spend some time there and see if the Lord would somehow use us. It was kind of like, uh, um, like a spying out kind of trip. And uh, so we went there. And then when I got into Congo, immediately I got this prayer in my heart. Um, Lord, if you'll take me to the most broken, I will love them. I was just, for some reason, I was praying that over and over. That prayer was just in my heart the whole time that I was there. And so we were there for a few days and had great meetings with some church leaders and everything. And then a pastor came to the city from the bush, so the jungles, and he told us about his village that had just, like the day, two days before, had been burned to the ground by rebel soldiers. 
And we asked him, like, well, what do you mean? Like, what, burnt to the ground? And he said, yeah, a rebel group came and attacked us. And the entire village is burnt to the ground, 130-something homes. And he said, many houses were burnt to the ground with the people still in them. And they plundered the whole place. They killed men. They were raping women. And he said, and I got away. And here I am. So he's there to report what had happened. And I was like, what? Like, where did that happen? And he said, Bust a day's drive from here. And I just couldn't believe that something so bad, so dramatic happened so close to where we were. And so um, I, I turned to the pastor, our contact there. I said, hey, are, are there more churches in that area? And he said, yeah, we have churches in different villages there. And I said, well, yeah, like, how are they doing? And he said, they're struggling. It's really hard. They're poor. They're oppressed. Uh, there's spiritual warfare. There's literally war. There's, there, there's hunger. And, um, and I said, is there any way that we can go there and encourage these churches? And he started laughing. He said, no, there's no way you can go there. You'll die. And um, I was like, okay. Leave it. But I couldn't let it go. And I kept praying, Lord, if you take me to these most broken people, I want to love them. And so I took the, the pastor aside. I said, is there really no way I could go there? I said, I can understand. We can't send a team there. But is there any way that I could go there? And um, he said, well... There probably is. He said, it'll be very risky. And so then he told me about a little village called Kanya Bayonga, which is right in the middle of the war zone. And he said, these people suffer the most. He said, they're right in the middle of the war. They're, all the time they're being attacked. And, um, and it is very, very hard for them. He said, but there's a church there that I know. And so I said, can, can we go there? And he said, if you want to go there, then I'll go with you. And so I called my wife. And um, I said, Merlis, there's opportunity for me to go into the war zone. Um, it's going to be risky. And I didn't know how risky it would be, but I, they told me it was risky. I said, do you feel good about me going? And so she prayed about it. I prayed about it. And we felt it was right for me to go. And so we did. So the team went back to Kenya. And then the, the pastor, the local pastor from the city and I, we decided to go to that village. And uh, so now he told me, he said, that now when I went there the last time, he said, I took a bus. And about halfway into rebel territory, he said, the bus was stopped by rebels, roadblock. And they came into the bus and they took all our belongings. They robbed from us. And um, they picked two men. They said, you and you come out of the bus with us. And these two, and he was, this pastor was sitting in the back of the bus. And so he saw them take out the two guys. And right next to the bus with big machetes, they hacked these two men to death. And there was a woman sitting in front of the pastor and um, she started screaming and yelling because one of these men was her brother. And so she was seeing her brother hacked to death right next to the bus. She was screaming and yelling. And the, these rebels, they heard it. They walked back into the bus to her. And she was sitting there with her little child. And they took her child by the feet and hit it against the bus until it was dead. And she, of course, the mother was trying to save the child and they killed her as well. And so the bus said, now that was the last time that I went there. It was two years ago, and I decided I never want to go there again. He said, but if you want to go, if you feel the Lord, I'll come with you. And he said, and, and even the time before that he went, like really difficult stuff happened. And so he said, but I'll go with you. And um, so we, he said goodbye to his family, hugged and kissed all his children. And um, we took a little plane for 45 minutes toward, in, towards the jungle. Then we took motorbikes for three and a half hours deeper into the jungle. And that's when we got to the edge of what they call the red zone, which is the war zone. And um, from there on, 
it was rebel territory and it would be risky because they said if you see if you encounter the rebels you'll definitely be killed and so we had motorbikes that we could take further but i was just struggling in myself thinking lord how do we how do i get to that village what you know what's how are you leading me do we take motorbikes and just risk it or what and then um, there was a UN army base in that village. And um, so I decided, let's go talk to the soldiers and ask them for advice, see what they say. And so I went there and I told them, like, hey, I'm Daniel. I want to travel to this village. And they were a little surprised. And, um, but they said, um, you're lucky because we've got a convoy traveling through the region tomorrow. And we're going through that village. You can drive with us and we'll drop you off. And so was, I felt like it was the Lord making a way for me to get to that village. And so the next day we were there all the UN soldiers drove the whole day through rebel territory and they dropped me off at the village and they continued and I was in that little village beautiful little village maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred people and in the jungles of Congo absolutely beautiful and um, we were dropped off at the church and so I met the pastor and I asked him this is now at the end of the day I said so pastor what is life like over here and um, he started telling me what it was like and I got I was shocked that village that was burnt to the ground was only six kilometers away from this village where I was and he said and those rebels they've come to our village and they've actually surrounded our village and they come in every night and attack um, and kill people and rape women and they said that there's actually no food in the village right now because we can't go out and bring food in because he said if we send our women out they'll be raped and if the men go out in you know to the, in the land where they're working the gardens said the men will be killed and then he started telling me the stories of how they're suffering and the things that these rebels have been doing and after a while i asked him please can you stop telling me stories because i just couldn't handle it anymore i mean i'd never encountered suffering like this before never heard stories like this before there's one young guy who said yeah, when I was 16 years old, I woke up some years ago, woke up in the morning at home with my family, and he said, dad was missing. And he said, we walked outside to look for our dad, and he said, I walked into the bush, and I found a stick in the ground with my father's head on it. That's how a 16-year-old boy found out that his father had died. And the crazy thing is, everybody has stories like that. The UN calls these rebel groups the most intense, violent groups in the world. And so the pastor, when he's telling me these stories, and he said, they will come in and attack us tonight again. And then I said, please, can you stop? I can't handle so many stories. And then they took us to our rooms where we were staying right by the church. And there were five rooms in a row. And they said, Daniel, why don't you take the middle room? In that case, if rebels come tonight, then you'll be the last to be found. And so I, I got into my room, and I closed the door, and I got really scared. And I thought... Like, or maybe I hoped I was like this really bold missionary <laughs> who was ready to die for Lord Jesus, but I got really scared. And his fear came over me so strong that I felt like throwing up. Like, I felt it in my stomach. I was like, oh my goodness, like, I might die here tonight. And it was so real. And um, right outside our, our hut, like our, with our five little rooms, there were some banana trees. And I already figured out, I looked at them, I was like, that's where I'll hide tonight if I hear shooting or rebels come. Like, I'm going to see if I can hide between these banana trees. And I was so scared. And I was like, Lord, I don't want to be afraid here in, in this village. I feel like, I believe you let me here. And so I decided to pray and, and find hope in the scriptures, just to be a believing person and overcome this strong sense of fear that came over me, that was overwhelming. And um, 
And so I went to Psalm 23, and I asked the Lord, Lord, is it possible that you could somehow prepare a feast for me in the presence of enemies? Is it possible somehow in this war zone that you and I can fellowship together, that you can meet me here? And I, I wrestled with the Lord for three or four hours to find breakthrough, overcoming this fear, and finally it lifted. And I slept in peace that night. But that night in our little dusty street in front of where we were staying, a man was killed. Rebels came and they, they cut off his penis. They cut off pieces of meat from his leg that they take with them to eat. That's how crazy it is over there. And, but I slept in peace through it and the next morning they asked me to share in the church. Every morning at 5 o'clock the Christians gathered to pray. And um, so they asked me to share, and I didn't know much to say, but I told them just what had been helping me the night before break through the fear that I felt and how I found encouragement in the scriptures and the Lord's presence. And so we just shared and prayed a little bit, and afterwards a man came up to me, and he said, Daniel, I'm so thankful that you came. We are all alone. Nobody visits us. We've not seen a missionary for eight years. Our own church leaders, our own family will not come and see us. We are left alone. Thank you that you came. And I felt so thankful in my heart that the Lord would, have, would bring me there, that I could be with these people. Because this is where I wanted to be. And so I was happy. I was like, hey, I'm doing something. This is good. And so I turned to the next guy. He's like, hey, good morning. How are you doing? With that, you know, all happy and excited. And he looks at me with the broken like a broken look in his, his, his face, and he's like, how am I doing? I can't sleep at night. My family is being killed. And I said, I'm sorry. Like, I was sorry that I was all excited and happy because they're suffering. And then I wasn't allowed to walk anywhere in the open in case rebels would spot me. So I had to stay inside all day, met with some of the church leaders. We had a fantastic time. The next morning, again at the prayer meeting, they asked me to share, and I said, guys, I don't know what to say. I'm just so thankful to be here. And immediately this widow says, I've got something to say. And she read something from the Psalms, and then she said, guys, God is good. She said, we may not see it with our natural eyes, that, that the goodness here all around us, but he said, if we can look with our spiritual eyes, we all know God is good. And she starts giving this incredible testimony. And I was so humbled. And then they started worshiping, and it was beautiful. And the presence of the Lord was there, and it was truly light in the midst of darkness, overcoming the darkness, right in this mud hut in the war zone in one of the worst places on the earth, the poorest country on the earth. And the Lord was there. There were His children there who believed in Him, who loved Him, and were finding victory and hope in Jesus Christ. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> and... Uh, you, you ended up, you were telling me the story of how um, rebels came and it got dangerous and you, you escaped or was that another time? Yeah, yeah, several times. This, this time, so I was stuck in this village. I could, there was no way I could get out. Um, so then my cell phone, miraculously, it worked in that village. And it was like a prepaid phone in Kenya that shouldn't work in the Congo and that has a little bit of credit. But for some reason, I was able to call. And I, so I had a friend in Canada who was an advisor to the UN on child issues. And so I called him with my phone from, from that village. It was the middle of the night, and his wife picks up. And he's like, Daniel, is that you? I'm like, yes. 
She's like, are you in trouble? I'm like, yes. And she's like, all right, here's Ralph. And so I speak to him. He's like, hey, I'm in trouble. I'm stuck in this village in Congo. Can you call the UN? I need help. So he did, and the UN came, and they got me out of that village. Um, then, so this was like two and a half years ago, three years ago almost. But then last November, I, was in, I went into the war zone again this last November. And um, we traveled for two days into the jungles to a little village, and it was right on the front line of the war zone. And... Um, they were fighting a rebel group just outside the village. And um, a special thing happened to me. Because in the last year, in 2012, last year, I had this recurring dream three or four times. about, a, And in the dream, there was a little girl, maybe three years old, a Congolese girl. And she was surrounded by angry men, uh, clearly intent on doing harm, like closing in on her. And in the dream, I stepped in and I took the little girl away from these guys. And I would always wake up with this sense of adoption, a sense that it was from the Lord. And so my wife and I had been talking, like, maybe the Lord wants us to adopt a little girl from the Congo or something. We didn't know what it meant. But so I was there last November. And that evening, Saturday evening, we get into the village. And I'm telling my friend these dreams that I've been having. And I said, maybe the Lord wants to use me to rescue a little girl. Like, I was ready to be a hero. And he's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. He said, maybe the girl represents a village or a people group, a tribe that God wants you to, in a sense, adopt and commit to, maybe even just in prayer. And I was like, yeah, maybe, who knows? We didn't figure the dream out, but we went to bed. And the next morning, Sunday morning, I went to speak in a little church in the village. And so I walked through the village, like 15-minute walk to the other end of the village. And, of course, in Africa, there's all these beautiful little African kids, and they all came running out because they never see a white guy there. And so they're all looking at me, and they say, Mzungu, which means white person. So they're all like, Mzungu, Mzungu. And they all stick up their thumbs because all the UN soldiers who are internationals, that's how they always greet the kids. And so all these little children, they think internationals stick up their thumbs to greet each other. And so all the little kids are looking at me, and they're like, Mzungu, Mzungu. And kind of keeping a distance because they're a little scared, you know, nervous about what's this strange white guy doing here in our village and can we trust him? So they're following me around. It's like, mzungu, mzungu. And I walk through the village and I get to the other end of the village. And um, a bit ahead, I see a little girl and she looks at me and she doesn't say mzungu. She doesn't stick up her thumbs to me. She sees me and she says, Daniel. And she runs straight to me. And it's the little girl that I've been seeing in my dreams. And she runs to me and she wraps her arms around me, puts her head on my belly and just held me very affectionately. And I was perplexed. Here I was in the middle of a war zone. I'd never been to this village or this region of that province. And I told the pastor that traveled with me, I said, did you hear that? Did she call my name? And he's like, yeah. I said, how can she know my name? And he said, I don't know. She can't. And I stood there. And you know how in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations? Then he ends with this promise, and he says, I will be with you always. Which is like the Great Commission ends with this great promise of his nearness. And I remember standing there in the jungle in the midst of a war zone in a terrible place because of all the violence going on, beautiful in many other ways holding this little girl, and there's a sense of the Lord's presence. He was right there with me, which is my greatest joy in missions, is, is that the experience of his presence. Anyways, that's and we've just got two minutes left. In the last two minutes, Daniel, before we pray, um, 
what's, what would you say, you, you just said it kind of, uh, the, the greatest lessons you've learnt in this time? Just very quick, maybe the one lesson. Okay. Um, I think one thing that's helped me is that no matter where you go or how dark or oppressed it is, there's something in us that is greater than all of that. And it doesn't matter how dark it is. And, and the Great Commission is radical. God tells us to go into all the nations and to preach the gospel of the kingdom to all the people groups. And there are many that are in very difficult places, hard to reach. There's a reason they're not reached. Very resistant, very demonic, and very hostile to the gospel and missionaries. And yet we carry something in us that is greater than all of that. And in Jesus, we, offer, we can offer the hope that would bring change to their lives and their nation. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you, mate. Let's just stay here. That's...